So all summer, we kicked it off five weeks ago. Um, we've been talking about the soul. What is the soul? What does it mean? Do you have a soul? You know, week one, we really defined all of that. And I kind of want to pull some from week one because week one, we really just, just solidified the fact that the soul is not an it or a what or a thing. The soul is a who. Your, your soul is your inner world. You know, a lot of times we, we just focus on the outer world, on what's, what's going on outside, what we can see, what we can sense, what we can feel. But most of what Jesus taught about was on the inner world. What, how, is, how is your soul? What's going on on the inside? Uh, you, you know, it, we, we've got different branches now of science and medical, in the medical world that study just the inner world, psychology and psychiatry. And those things, though, did not exist for the most part when the Bible was written. And so when Jesus talked about the soul, and when, he would, and when the Bible, the book of Psalms, I would call it kind of the book of soul, there's hundreds of references to the soul in the book of Psalms. And we've talked about some of those over the last few weeks. But my prayer has been that, that God would strengthen all of us on the inside. On the inside. And so often, I, I'm just going to preach to the choir, I, I will attach my happiness and peace and, and kind of inner tranquility to what happens around me. Right? Like, I, I'll, I'll be at peace if I can just get this promotion. I'm going to make enough money where I can kind of take it, you know, I can buy the house that I wanted or get that, that second boat or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you know, we always, we always act like happiness and tranquility is something that we got to achieve on the outside. And if I finally get there or if I get into that school or finally get that to degree or find Mr. Right, come on, like, like we, we attach our inner peace to, to things on the outside. And we know that that's kind of a dead end road. We know that, that happiness and, and being okay on the inside has very little to do with what happens to us on the outside. And so your soul is your real you. It's the original you. It's the you that God created. It's the original version of you. When you came out, right, and, and you made your debut to this world before all these labels got placed on you, right? If you're sitting in the airport, you're talking to somebody, usually one of the first questions is to try to find out about that person is well what do you do and so you start defining yourself by what you do or what you have or where you're from but your, your soul is much deeper than that and so today we're going to talk about just a, a couple of verses and this is this is a probably one of the most profound statements I think Jesus makes about the soul and this is one of those um, sayings or, or chapters it's not it's just about five or six verses but it's one of those interactions that Jesus had with his disciples in the crowd that I call like, like, a, like more of a thinning teaching, right? He had teachings where, where the crowd showed up and they wanted to hear it. He started talking about blessings and the kingdom of God and he worked these miracles and, and, and it, it attracted people. It would attract them from all over the world. Like, like everybody wanted a moment with Jesus. But then he would say things and he would, I think he would purposely say really hard things to cut the crowd back. He would. He would say things that are, are really, you know, when you read it, it's not, you know, it's not one of these, um, it's not these verses that you probably have cross-stitched on a pillow, right? It, it's, it's, and it's, I would say it's one of the most famous few verses about the soul. 
We see it in the book of Matthew. We see it in the book of of Luke. I'm going to read from from Mark's gospel because I feel like he captured a little more. And so Luke and Matthew all wrote about this one moment where Jesus teaches on the soul. And it's a thinning thinning teaching. It's a teaching that's hard. It's a teaching that that didn't draw a crowd. And so we're going to read it, just a few verses. Mark chapter 8. I'll put it on the screen for you. We're going to start in verse 34. And I want you to notice who he's talking to. He calls the crowd and the disciples. That's important. So he's not just talking to the crowd that showed up that's maybe wanting something, something to eat or a miracle or a sign. He's directing this to everyone, the church, the disciples. And he calls the crowd and the disciples. He calls them together and he says, if anybody wants to follow me, come after me, wants to be my disciple. Like this isn't a heaven or hell thing. This is a, do you want to be my disciple? He gives a few things that we have to do. He's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life or her life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits or loses his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? How can he buy it back once he loses it? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in all the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right. So let's unpack this a little bit. The first thing I I, I really want to pull out of there is I looked as hard as I could look, right? I, I Googled it to, to here and there and looked. And, and I've never met anyone that gained the whole world. And I don't think anyone has ever existed to this point that's gained the whole world, right? I mean, imagine what would you do if you gained the entire world? If all the nations bowed down to you and said, you are the, uh, we want you to be our ruler. And they brought all the wealth and all the riches and all the power of the entire world at your feet. What would you do with it? Gain the whole world. That's what went, that, world, the, that word is cosmos. It's the wealth and the riches and the power of this world. If you were to get it all, how long would it last? It'd be a real run for a while, right? Like, I mean, you'd have, I mean, it would probably, you could do a lot with it, but really how long could you hold on to it? And, and the people that really do go after power and they go after wealth, oftentimes they get a hold of it and then it gets a hold of them. And by chasing after it, and they finally get it, and then it like, it's like they lose themselves in the journey. Howard Hughes is probably a modern-day example of going after the wealth of the world and gaining the world. If you don't know who he is, there's a movie about him called The Aviator. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is, plays Howard Hughes, and he, was, um, he inherited some wealth from his dad. His dad was in oil and patented this part, so he inherited a pretty large inheritance. And then he went on to found uh, several businesses that brought him a lot of wealth. Um, he kind of made it to the top of Hollywood. Have you seen the movie Scarface? That was him, right? Uh, and then not only that, he made it to the top of the aviation world. So he's, he had contracts from the government to build planes, and he had the fastest plane on the planet at one time, and he, he built the plane that went across the Pacific. And, and so he, he, he achieved so much in his life. They say Las Vegas was developed because of Howard Hughes. But in that movie, if you've seen it, 
You know that he was one of the most driven men. He had so much ambition. But the way his life ended was so sad. He just jumped around from hotel to hotel. And he ended his life lonely. Had a lot of money. Had a lot of stuff. But he didn't want to see anyone. They said only a few people the last few years of his life could even, would even have a conversation with him. He hid from everyone. And so he died alone in his penthouse uh, at the top, you know, heading to a hospital because he, he was malnourished and he had all, so much going on. But you would think, man, how does a person who has all that become so isolated and, and become so disintegrated within themselves? How does that happen? And I think Jesus shows us. So there, there's, a, there's a way in this life, there's this constant, like, I, I, almost like you're driving down the interstate and there's these billboards and they're all advertising things, right? And it's like, if you go after this, you'll be fulfilled. And if you go after this, you'll be fulfilled. And if you finally get this or if you gain and this, save this much money, then you can take your ease and everything will be okay. And we know that it's just dead end roads, from a biblical standpoint, who I think the person that really achieved the most in his life would be King Solomon. So let's take it from, from the Bible standpoint. We know that the, the Bible talks about his wisdom surpassed anyone that's ever really lived. He was wiser than all the kings of his time. He almost had like a genie in the bottle experience. God basically said, hey, Solomon, you got one wish. You can have whatever you want. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for, like, his enemies to just disappear, right? Or, you know, he, he didn't ask for, for, for um, power. He asked for wisdom. And so he, he, God gave him not only wisdom, he says, I'm going to give you much more than that. I'm going to give you the wealth. I'm going to give you the riches. I'm going to give you the kingdoms. And he wrote a book called the Book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a pretty somber book. I want to read this to you. So here's a man that achieved it all. The whole world wanted just a few moments with Solomon because he was so wise. He, he built one of the greatest temples that's ever been built. He had everything in his disposal. And this is what he says in, in Ecclesiastes 2. Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind me. Left them in the dust. What's more, as I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I got it. Never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done, looked at all the sweat and hard work. But when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Now what a sad reality it would be to get to the end of life and achieve all of this, whatever this is for you, and not be able to enjoy it. When we first planted the church, it was about six months into planting Upper Room. We're about five years old now, so this is like a fresh story. I was, you know, I thought in my heart, you know, this, we need to plant this church. I felt like this is what I was supposed to do, and, and we did it. Right? Like people showed up. It was awesome. I thought, you know, I didn't think it would last a couple months. You know, I was like, hey, we're going we're gonna to plant this church and it's going to be great. And, and I really felt like that's what God had called me to do. And I'll never forget, like, about three or four months in, I felt really just like 
okay, so now what? <laughs> right? Like the dog that chased the mailman its whole life, and he finally, like, grabs it by the leg, and it's like, well, what do I do with the mailman? You know what I mean? Like, I've been, I've been, I've been going after this goal in my life for years, and I get it, and what do I do with it? And, and I, I, I called a pastor and sat down with a pastor who had also planted a church, and, you know, he, he said, Nathan's success without fulfillment it's one of the greatest agonies in life. And I felt that. Have you ever succeeded at something and then wondered, well, I mean, is this it? I think that's what Solomon felt. I think that's what we will all feel in some point of our, of our life. Is, is if we attack, and, and, and I wanted to tell that story because planting churches, I feel like, is a good thing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like planting churches is like, I mean, surely if you work for God, you should be super fulfilled in all you do. But I'm just being honest with you. I, you know, it wasn't what I thought it would be. Have you ever succeeded at something in life or you planted, you started that business, you got that degree and you wanted it, you've worked for it for so long and then you start working in that field and you're like, hmm, Anybody? It's, it's okay. You can, don't, don't raise your hand. Act like you don't know what I'm talking about. But, I, but you do. Success without fulfillment. It's like, I thought this was going to be better, right? I thought this was going to be it. Like, I thought this was going to be kind of the arrival. And it's a moving target I'm, I'm seeing in life. That God gives us goals and he gives us vision. Vision and, and is, 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 a, is a blessing and a curse, when God puts something in your heart, puts something out front of you, in front of you, and you and you get it, it's like, man. Sometimes it can be a really good thing, and sometimes it can end with, with some some soul searching. I think that's what we see in Solomon. I think that's what we we see with with so many people that that have succeeded at things and thought, well, like I did, this is going to kind of complete complete me kind of thing. And God was like, no, there's more to the story. And so these are very hard verses that Jesus shares. And I like it because he's sharing it with his disciples. This is, this is for the pastor and the person in the pew. This is for everybody. This is not just, you know, this is, this is a universal, I think, truth. And he, and he says, if, if you, if you, if you want to find fulfillment in what God has called you to do and not, you know, not lose your soul in the process, I think he gives the cure before he gives the symptom of gaining the world, whatever the world may be for you, and, and, and losing yourself in the process. You can lose yourself in going after good things. Did you know that? You can lose yourself in doing the work of God. The best advice I've ever been given was don't let the work you do for God destroy the work of God in you. And, and so no matter what you put your hands to in life, there is a success that can come that comes through striving and pushing. And, and sometimes it's in our own strength and we finally get a hold of what we wanted. And it's like, I don't know if this is what I really wanted. And Jesus gives two, I think, prescriptions. And they're not easy. They're hard pills to swallow. Look at your neighbor and say, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. It's okay, but I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you. The first thing he, he says, again, this is to the, the, the crowd and the disciples. He says, if you want to follow after me, this isn't a heaven or hell thing. He's not saying, if you want to go to heaven, you got to do this. He's saying, no, if you want to walk in my footsteps and be my disciple, the first step is you got to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, that is not popular, right? That is kind of the opposite of what culture says right now. If you want to be happy, just say, say yes to everything. 
right? Just do what makes you happy. If you, I mean, just, just say yes to everything and everyone. If it feels good, do it. Like, you know, don't deny yourself any kind of happiness. Don't deny yourself anything that you want. You can be whatever you want to be. Have you heard that? And I just don't think that's true. It sounds good. People will like, you know, get all like, oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. But I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. I think there's a part of our life when we come to follow Jesus that we have to lay down. And when he says deny self, he's not saying deny your dreams. He's not saying deny the purpose and the plan and the, and the, the treasure that's inside of you. He's saying deny, the, the closest word I could find is ego. Deny your ego. He says, if you want to come after me and be not my disciple, you've got to have a willingness to give up your ego. Your ego. That, that's the part of you, like, when you take a, a, a family picture, you don't see anybody else in the picture. You just look at yourself first. You know what I'm saying? That's the part of you that just focuses on you all the time. And, uh, you know, that, that get, you know, come on, somebody, right? You know what I'm talking about. That, that's your, that, that's your, your ego. And, and I'm finding the more I feed my ego, the more I starve my soul. The more I do things that feel good to me and my ego and prop me up and make me look good and make everybody see me, the, the, the more my soul is starving. And Jesus modeled this so brilliantly. He would heal somebody and say, hey, by the way, please don't tell anybody. He didn't advertise. He didn't write a book. He didn't start a church. He would go and do the work of God and slip out of that community as quietly as he could. Nobody, and he would constantly tell his disciples, right after this happens, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the three disciples see Jesus, a version of him that they never thought existed, the glorified Jesus. And the first thing he tells them is, don't tell anybody. But we live in a culture of self-promotion. Right? We live in a culture of, I, I kind of want to be up front and out front. And Jesus says, no, the way of the master is the way of leaving your ego behind. Man, it's getting quiet in here. And the more I do things that feed my ego, the more my, my soul becomes scattered. Now, this seems like an oxymoron, but a few things about the ego really quick. Your ego wants to become completely independent. I'm the captain of my own soul. You heard that before? I don't need anybody. Don't need anything from anyone. I got it all. I can do it on my own, right? That's ego. And that's not good. Because we're not the captain of our own soul. We're the keeper of our soul. But it's not your soul, right? It's that part of you that God breathed into you. And so even living that type of life is asking for a, a, a just completely stressful and striving life if it all depends on you. If everything that's got to get done is all up to you, come on, somebody, right? That's a terrible way to live. And some people walk around with that kind of weight on their shoulders every day. That if I don't do it, it won't get done. If I don't do it, I mean, and, and so your ego just wants to be completely dependent. A psychologist, his name is Martin Silgman, and he doesn't, he's not a religious, he's not a Christian psychologist. He said this, we have replaced church in faith in community with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. That's the self. That's the ego. We're all about the ego. We're all about the self. We revolve our lives around ourselves. That's a terrible way to live. And you'll never meet somebody who's a self-made man or a self-made woman. You never will. 
Somebody helped you get to where you are right now. You may have had 35 rejections in your life this year. You may have been through a lot of loss and pain in your life, and I'm not discounting that. But somebody somewhere helped you, right? Somebody somewhere, that, that was uh, Mr. Rogers' big thing, right? Y'all know Mr. Rogers? He's my favorite. Love Mr. Rogers. He said, I want you just to take a minute and think about all the people that helped you get to where you are right now. You sitting in here with your fine self, right, dressed up on a Sunday morning. Think about the teachers and the coaches and the mom and the dad or the grandpa or the grandma or the foster parents or whoever that helped you get to where you are right now. Sometimes we need a reminder of that. All right, it gets even worse. You ready? All right, second. <laughs> no, I got to move on. Your soul is God-dependent. Your ego is independent. Your soul is God-dependent. You're made to, be, to need something. That's why I think everybody at some, in some way, shape, or form is an addict because you're made to need something. You, you got to have water. You got to have food. Your soul needs God. It's got to have him. I think that's why David said this, Psalm 84, verse 2, my soul yearns, it craves the courts of the Lord. I've got to have him. You can take everything else, but I've got to have that. I've got to have him. So Jesus says, all right, late, late, I want you to deny yourself. And then he makes another statement. Take up your cross. And so what does that mean? I think that means basically it's a, willing to, a willingness to embrace sacrifice. We just think about it. And what I love about this is I think Jesus puts the hard stuff up front, right? If you look at the way that the devil disciples and recruits people, he puts the good stuff up front. It's like an adjustable rate mortgage. Come on, somebody. Right? You, know, you remember the housing crisis that happened not too long ago? You know why that happened? Because people were being incentivized to sell mortgages that said, hey, it's a 2% interest rate, but they didn't tell you about the fine print where it went up to 30% in five years. And they knew that nobody could pay them. And they intentionally did it so that people would default. That's the way the devil recruits. It's the a, it's a Garden of Eden. It's, hey, if you, if you eat of this, you're going to be like God. He puts the good stuff up front. He doesn't tell you about the pain and the suffering and the death and all that stuff that came with eating of that tree and that fruit. He just gave the good stuff up front. Jesus does the, other, he does the opposite. He says, if you want to follow me, again, if you want to be my disciple, you really want to live this life in my footsteps, you've got to embrace your cross. Now, you can't take his cross. And I think, I think this, is, this is singular. This is for every single person. I couldn't carry that cross. Nobody could carry the cross he carried. But you do have a cross. It's what makes you bleed. It's what causes pain. It's, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It was his cross. And it's a willingness to embrace that. Not to pray, pray our way out of suffering. Not to pray our way around sacrifice. I don't want to give up anything. What we're finding in life, what I'm finding in life, is you get to choose your sacrifice because it's inevitable. You don't get to choose if you're going to sacrifice or not. You get to choose what you're going to sacrifice. Because life demands it of you. And we're giving, and we're giving, and we're giving. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, I know this is a hard word. You're like, man, you just came back from vacation, dude. Come on, this should be happier. I know, I know, I know. But this has been on my heart a lot. What is your cross? 
What are you giving in your life? Where are you sacrificing? Because you are. I know everybody's doing it. And to me, that is more beautiful than any, any worship song that we can sing. In the Old Testament, there was a little phrase, I believe it's in the book of Kings, where it says, God, he doesn't want, he, he wants obedience from you. He, he wants you to take up that thing in your life that maybe is so difficult and so hard and embrace it. And that's what Jesus did. It's incredible, sacrifice. And so we choose it. And then he says this, and then we're, we're going we're gonna to pray and take communion. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will, will save it. And that doesn't make any sense to me. How do you gain by losing? And how do you lose by gaining? And he goes on in that famous verse, who, you know, what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain everything and lose their soul? Now, we got to look at that word profit. You're a lot of business people in this room. You've, 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 you look at P&L. You know what a profit and loss statement is. If you don't, you will profit. Profit is what's left over after the transaction happens. That's, that, and I, I know somebody, I know you've probably in your life gained something that you thought was going to be good and it ended up not being good. Or you made that deal and you knew you shouldn't have made that deal. Or you kind of leveraged yourself a little bit too much or scaled a little too much. And you thought, well, I mean, I'm, I, if I get more, more should be better. And then you found out more was actually worse. More came with more problems. More came with more anxiety. And I think what Jesus is saying here, there's a gaining in life that leads to losing. There's a gaining in life that leads to losing. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6, Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And so I want to speak to someone specifically that maybe you're going through a season of, of loss right now. I know this may just be a few people. And it's hard and it's tough. And, and, and nobody, likes to go th nobody likes to be pruned. And I think we, we have this philosophy in our culture that more is always better. And, and one house is good, but two houses is better. And one car is good, and, but two cars are better. And, and, and it's not true. And, and Jesus called his disciples to this way of life. And he, he required them to leave everything they knew to follow him. That's, a, that's incredibly hard. Who can do that? To, to be willing to give up all that you are to be all that you can be. To just saw the limb off that you're standing on just to see what happens. Sometimes God will call us to that place. To leave a good job. For a job that pays less, has less benefits, less time off, because you feel in your heart that's what you're called to do. Because you feel Jesus, you feel God leading you that direction. And that's hard. That's difficult. But he doesn't end there. He goes on and, and he talks about his different way of life. He says that there's a losing, if we're willing to lay our lives down, there's a losing that leads to gaining. 
There's a losing that leads to gaining. That, it, that when we do go through seasons of loss and we do face things that we don't want and we don't want to walk through or God calls us to some tough sacrifices in our life. We have to take hope in the fact that, of this one thing and we're, then we're going to pray that the cross that represents sacrifice, it represents, it represents loss, it represents pain was not a destination. It was the transportation to get to where God was leading him. I want you to hear that. That when God calls us to lay things down in our lives, we may not pick them up on this side of eternity, but we will one day. And, and, and nothing, I don't believe nothing dies in the kingdom. When we sow it into the kingdom, nothing dies. It's just deposited. And when we have to give up things in our life, whether willingly or unwillingly, and God calls us to leave good jobs or, or good relationships or good things because he's calling us a different direction, those things are not wasted. They're, they're just deposited for another time. It's the infinite game. It, it's, it's, it's the fact that, you know, it doesn't begin and end with us. And sometimes God calls us to carry things for a season and then to lay them down and to sow them. And it's not giving them up. It's a deposit because it comes back. Good measure, pressed down, shaken to their come. Can anybody testify of some things in their life that God asked you to give up and you've seen it come back tenfold in your life? Can I get any witnesses in here? Come on, somebody. That, that it, it's, 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 not, it's not forever. It's, it's the sacrifice is, is, is what leads to the blessing. It's the sacrifice. That's why I think the Bible calls it a sacrifice of praise, that, that real worship costs us something. In our life, God will call us to lay things down. But Jesus didn't get stuck in a stage, hear this. He didn't take on a pathology of pain. You know, like, like I, and that's easy to do sometimes. He didn't say, well, I, I've lost, so I'm just a loser. No, 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 no. It was the transportation. The cross got him to where he needed to be for God to resurrect and bring new life and new hope. And I want you to hear that. That whatever we lay down in this life, whatever we lose in this life, there's coming a day. There's going to come a day, y'all, where every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, and even the people that we've sown into the ground are going to be resurrected. And the dreams and the promises and the things that maybe that, that you have given up and had to lay down, one day will come to pass. And when that resurrection happens, it's going to make sense. It's going to make sense. I want to close with this verse, John 12. It's kind of a parallel passage. Truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it just remains a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who's willing to live open-handed like this and say, come, Lord, what may, I'll trust you will keep it for eternal life. Jim Elliott, on his way, and I think he was in his late 20s, a missionary to a remote tribe in Africa. One of the last things he's recorded saying is he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is what I want you to do. I just want you to, for a moment, I want you to take that communion and we're gonna take communion together. 
I know this is a tough message. You should have a communion cups right there in front of you. If you don't, put your hand up. We'll bring it to you. If you don't have a communion, just put your hand up. We'll bring it to you. And so I want to take communion together this morning. And what does communion remind us of? Well, a few things. But it reminds us that the person that that we're following in our faith journey, he had to give up some things. His body was broken. He, He sacrificed. And it was not something that he was forced to do. It was a willing sacrifice. God the Father didn't make him do that. The Bible tells us at one moment he could have called for a legion of angels to come and get him, but he, he didn't. He laid his life down and we're following in his footsteps. And so take that bread and I want you just to, to hold it in your hand and we're gonna, we're gonna pray over that bread. Father, we thank you so much for your body that was broken. We thank you that you're not calling us to do anything that you didn't do yourself. You're not calling us to walk a road that you didn't walk, but you endured seasons of loneliness. You endured the brokenness. You endured the pain. You had people that you dearly loved walk out on you. And so Lord, in this this moment, as we take the bread, We're reminded of your brokenness and we're reminded that because you broke your body, we could be made whole. Because of your brokenness, you can take our life when it seems to be in pieces and somehow bring sense to it. You can connect the dots because you willingly endured And so, Jesus, we thank you so much for the brokenness, God. We thank you that you also said in Isaiah 53 that it's with your broken body we are healed. And so we believe, God, as we take this this bread, that with this bread comes healing. With this bread comes what we need in our life in this moment right now. If there's relationships that are broken, if, if maybe on the inside of us we feel just scattered. Lord, bring things into perspective this morning for us. As we look to you, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can take the bread. Then it said on the night in the upper room, he's teaching this to his disciples. He just takes a cup and he lifts it up and he said, this is the cup of this is, my, this is my pain. This is my, my cross. This is my sacrifice. And it's going to bring a lot of good into your life. And he said it represented this new covenant that we all have, that we all get to walk in. And he took the cup and he blessed it. And I have to believe in that moment the disciples didn't know exactly what was going on. But again, it's this invitation. It's, it's the model of laying our life down, of doing things that we probably normally wouldn't do in our own strength or couldn't do in our own strength. But God gives us the strength. And so, Lord, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for, for 2,000 years, Christians and saints and pastors and popes and preachers and God, every, that this cup has represented the covenant that we have right now with you. 
and we have found strength and hope in this cup. We have found that suffering is just a stage. It's not a, it's not a destination that we don't live there, but it's a, it's a process that we all have to go through. And we have found that in this cup, there's a joy that comes on the other side. There's a joy that comes on the other side. And so Lord, we thank you and we give you all the honor and the praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take the cup.